What is a symbiotic city and how can we achieve it? In today's episode of Pod Parks, we are interviewing Marian Stiver, a social scientist at Wageningen University who has published extensive research on urban resilience, food sustainability, and symbiotic cities. We get to discuss Marian's new book, The Symbiotic City, Voices of Nature in Urban Transformations, and dive into how we can transform this innovative concept into a reality. I'm Alice Landon, and this is Pod Parks. Podparks, the podcast for the park-minded, brought to you by World Urban Parks. Welcome to Podparks, a podcast by World Urban Parks. I'm Alice Landon, and with me today is Marianne Stiver, head of the Green Cities program and social scientist at Wageningen University from the Netherlands. Marianne, thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much for asking me. Now, we're going to talk about a lot of and really amazing concepts and really ma amazing ideas today. But before we get to that, I would love to first know about you. Could you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to exist in the parks world? Yes, of course. Well, as a child, I al already enjoyed very much being in nature. And the Netherlands, of course, is a highly uh, dense, uh, densely populated uh, country. Some might even say it's a delta city. Yeah. Um, but my father was always very, very into birds and trees and plants. So when I was young, he already took me to watch the owls and, and to look at, uh, at the beautiful old trees and go to the dike of the, of the Zuiderzee, which is a sea, so there is special vegetation of plants. And actually this was in the 70s and 80s in the Netherlands when we had a lot of suffering uh, for our plants and, and birds because of the acid rain. Yeah. And so I already, when I was young, I already saw that, you know, nature was really having a hard time in a, in a city. Well, and then of course, well, now it's a little longer uh, away uh, that I was so young, but um, I went everywhere around the world and saw so many people really being ambitious to take care of their communities and not only the communities of people but also the animals and the plants around them. So when I got this job at Wageningen University and Research to be the head of the program Green Cities, I was actually thinking, I'm not living in a really huge city, I'm not living in a metropole. Well, if you consider the Netherlands a metropole, it's fine, because we're only one hour away from Uh, from Amsterdam, for instance, right? So we, we have a huge infrastructure, trains and trams, so it's very easy to, to get everywhere. And I thought maybe I can even take a bit of the rural experience and the nature experience I have with me to the urban areas and um, talk with different people about, um, so not only citizens, but also, for instance, real estate owners, um, uh, people from municipalities, uh, architects, how to include nature in their designs and their projects. I love that. And you have done a lot of different things and you wrote a book called The Symbiotic City, Voices of Nature in Urban Transformation. And I know it probably speaks to this experiences that you're talking about. But could you first of all, tell us a little bit about your book, but also what does it mean to create a symbiotic city? And what are the transformations that need to happen to achieve a symbiotic city? Yeah, so symbiosis is a Greek word and it means uh, living together with. 
and uh, of course it's used in uh, biology um, if two organisms really need each other to survive so they are not parasitic on e each other but they are really in mutual dependence for their living and that's why I use the word symbiotic also for our relationship with uh, well with the insects and the birds and uh, and the plants and the shrubs around us uh, to explain that we actually lost this idea of connection with with nature around us you know even our language is sometimes uh, not sufficient enough to un understand the complexity of uh, the living environment around us so um, so well for me it's been a big journey to write the book it started with discovering that you know that we use nature very much of course for our own function so it's it's a the functional value of nature what I call the physical value of nature and the cultural value of nature is that the physical value is we eat from nature, uh, we live behind dikes, uh, we use the water, you know, we use nature in many ways to sustain our lives. That's the physical value of nature. Then there is the cultural value of nature. Well, what the urban parks is about, everybody's like to play in, in uh, under a tree or climb in a tree, go hiking here uh, in the beautiful mountains of Monterey. Well, that's everywhere around the world, you know watch the dolphins, play with the dolphins uh, in Adelaide in next year. So that's the cultural value of nature. And then I thought, yeah, but that's not enough. If we only use nature for our own purposes, of course, uh, there's so much more to nature than that. So then I got into the whole idea uh, of people that were dealing with the symbiocene. Uh, also a Dutch uh, architect called uh, Louis de Roy, who made, makes uh, ecological cathedrals in which nature really can thrive, which is very close to the rewilding uh, movement uh, worldwide. And I thought, yeah, so the intrinsic value of nature is really important that we start to understand it. But that's also a big deficit in our knowledge. So really to understand what nature is about is very much the, you know, the hobby and the work of ecologists or um, what I call master gardeners or, ma you know, master ecologists. But actually everybody should have like a basic understanding of this. So the intrinsic value of nature also means getting to na know nature better. And this can be done through the cultural and the physical value of nature. Because if you like a park or if you appreciate uh, being in a natural area, of course you also want to know more. So, And then there is the, the fourth value of nature, which is really important to build upon which is even maybe a bit more abstract, but it's about the future value of nature so that we really have resources left yeah. for the generations to come. But not only treat nature as a resource, but also as a sink. So we need nature to adapt. Well, we know for carbon sequestration, for instance, uh, that trees and algaes, they really have a, a way of, you know, cleaning up our air uh, from uh, carbon dioxide. Um, but we also need, uh, for instance, our own uh, sink. Yeah. So as communities, because we need to stay healthy, we need to help each other, and otherwise, we, you know, we have to survive. We need each other. So that's the last one. That's the uh, future value of nature. And then, so in the symbiotic city, these values are all present, obviously. But what is a really important one is that symbiotic city is built up from. The idea that we cannot sustain without the soil and the water and the organisms that live in and on it under our city of concrete, uh, hopefully of bio-based materials, you know, of the digital networks we have, the infrastructure, the sewage systems, etc. So we really have to flip it. We are not building on nature, but nature 
invites us to live in and we adapt we adapt our living circumstances to what nature has to offer that is such an eloquent way to put it and i would ask a, another question you know we are of course at the forefront of the climate emergency of climate change and we talk a lot about making cities resilient to climate change do you think creating symbiotic cities goes beyond that uh, I think we need symbiotic cities in order to overcome all the challenges yeah. we have with climate adaptation at the moment. I mean, it's really great now that uh, a lot of world leaders has said, have said also at the, at the COP in Egypt yeah. last days, we need to have more attention for biodiversity and climate together because they're actually different networks worldwide and also very often local. So if you, for instance, see that people um, start a new urban area, they focus on climate adaptation, so they, they dig wadis, they want to have more trees, but they don't realize that in order to have this done resiliently, you need the biodiversity of the natural circumstances. Because we have to choose species, and we have to uh, um, use species that can adapt to the changes. So if yeah. we know how our city will look like in terms of climate conditions in 40 years, automatically we maybe get a new species that have to adapt in that area. So it's very, very linked to each other. You, one cannot do without the other. Absolutely. I would even, from what you tell me, and correct me if I'm wrong, I would even suggest that this idea of a symbiotic city uh, is a solution, right? It is like a, a concept or a framework that is what we should aspire to create, not only to solve climate change, but all of these other intersectional problems that we have within cities, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. I, I'm very much uh, focusing on solutions that are close to people's life worlds. So it's not an institutional solutions with big words, but it's really what can you do yourself if you step out of your house what can you change in your garden, uh, on the r rooftop, um, in your street, if there are no plants or whatever? What, what can you do with your neighbors? So make it really close, close to your own home. And that's what I also call, um, we have a nest for everyone. So we have a nest to sleep, but also a bird needs a nest to sleep. But then the, if we have a nest to sleep and the bird needs a nest to sleep, we also have to have food and safety and, well, of course, animals need a way to reproduce us themselves. We need ways to reproduce ourselves, not only physically by having children, but also by our, our thoughts and our love, you know. So um, we call that, you know, the four essential things for uh, any human being to survive. And we forgot that. We forgot yeah. this, this really green-blue infrastructure in our, in our cities so that also non-human organisms can really live and feed themselves, reproduce themselves, be safe, uh, and uh, move around. Of course, now you talk about all of these examples. In a symbiotic city, what role do parks and public spaces play? Other than, as you mentioned at the start, you know, the, the recreational things, the community areas, what new roles would partake? Crucial roles. It's, um, it's a beautiful example of what's called commoning. So it's not a pri necessarily private ownership, like you have a garden, or it's not necessarily a complete public ownership. It's a combination of this. So it's the, often a municipality of, um, or maybe a private owner can as well have a park, eh? a big castle park. In Europe you have all these castles with beautiful uh, areas around it. 
But the people that enter the park, um, live with the park, they co-own it, and that's called commoning. So uh, they have a crucial effect on people's perception of what nature is, because not everybody has the capacity to go to all biodiversity hotspots in the world. Yeah. Um, so if you, through your parks, can let people really experience and live with all types of, of values of nature, as I explained, also the intrinsic value of mm -hmm. nature, they also get, well, at, first of all, they get more healthy. It's really proven that, that being in nature is, is very good for people's well-being and uh, ment especially mental well-being, but also physical men well-being. Um, but also that the element of experience is important. So if you look at a tree, it does not have the same effect on your well-being than if you are standing under it and experience what's what's happening in the tree. So parks are, of course, a place of abundance of experiences people can have with nature. Absolutely, absolutely. Now you are a professor. I mean, you lead a program, but you're also a professor, right? How? I'm not a professor. You're sorry. not a professor? No, I'm not a professor. You just lead the program. <laughs> yeah, but I'm, I'm a doctor in yeah. science. And actually, I work for academia, but I work as... Um, for let's say uh, really applied research okay. foundation. Awesome. So and that's actually great. Uh, I mean, I need we need our professors and we yeah. need academics that uh, dedicate all their time to go in depth in all kinds of uh, issues. You know, what I do is talk with them, uh, gather their information, and try to uh, make it into visions and strategies for people in the real world. Of course, it's all is also world, but it's the real real world. I love uh, to implement all that knowledge and vice versa because every all knowledge should be co-construed. So, I believe I'm. A, a big, big believer of transdisciplinary science. Scientists cannot de uh, do without people in from uh, the sector of real estate. In this case, mm -hmm. they, um, ecologists didn't know really people in the real estate a uh, agencies. Now they get to know each other, and we call it the, the gray or the red meets the green, <laughs> and then the beautiful combinations come out in the co-construction process. So, for instance, I have in two weeks, I actually have a meeting with people from a real big uh, real estate agency in the Netherlands, some scientists and some people from neighborhood and, and NG, uh, organizations and NGOs. And we're gonna have an exploration on what should the ideal soil in the city look like? And, okay. what, and what, do you, what if, if people now build a whole new urban area, what do they forget about the soil? And how can we really, really um, make use of the capacities of the soil and the water and then the biotic and the abiotic um, aspects of it so that means the living materials and the non-living elements of soil and water to really make a resilient urban area now of course how do you think this collaboration and this applied research and as you say bringing people together you know you mentioned a great example how do you think it can also help professionalize the parks management and the public space management field, not only in spaces that have historically been really great at it, like the Netherlands, but also in the global south. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there are many disciplines that, that you know, um, emerge. Let's say let's, there are many scientific disciplines or many knowledge systems that are crucial for good park management. Mm -hmm. You know, it goes from, from technical, infrastructural challenges, uh, co concrete or 
uh, water management, um, to ecological uh, challenges, to, to social. How do you involve the neighborhoods? To psychology, uh, what happens if someone uh, looks at a certain element of your park? Does it make them feel safe or not? Uh, to inclusion questions, does everybody feel invited to this park? Uh, is everybody has everybody access to the park? Uh, can everybody express themselves the way they are uh, in the park? So, I really like also um, uh, to look at that. So that I think management should really be about the manager of a park. Of course, has also the financial aspects to it. How can we sustain this in the future? Uh, we do not necessarily want to be de dependent on uh, communities or municipalities. Yeah. So yesterday, for instance, I spoke with someone here from Mexico City who has a consultancy um, in Mexican Park, and she develops new business models with the communities to see how to sustain it. So they're being a park manager is a bit like, you know, you manage everything yeah. because it's a location. So you need to be very, very multidisciplinary, very uh, visionary, but also very practical. Um, and I also always say, you know, the CEO, if there is a day that everybody starts digging in the soil and planting new trees, the best is when the CEO gets there and says, hi, I'm John or, or uh, I'm, uh, well, Jorgos uh, or I'm uh, Maria. Uh, please uh, welcome uh, to my park and let's start digging together, you know, so really have a connection with the people that uh, that arrive and want to do voluntary work at the park. I want to talk then about the different elements that we have been talking about, collaboration, education, uh, research, the symbiotic city. In your experience, how do children come into play in creating this symbiotic city? In the Netherlands, we have at the moment a huge campaign uh, to give uh, the, the children, really from the start, when they start to discover their world, uh, so children at a certain age, they, their, their world gets bigger and bigger, and beginning they're only focused on their parents and the small and the teddy bear, and then suddenly, you know, and then <laughs> in the end they, they wander around and see everything, and they are surprised, you know, they, they dream, they love it. If they see a butterfly, for them it's like a huge thing. So. Uh, in the Netherlands, the uh, Institute of Nature Education is really programming experiences of children in nature so that children from the start get this feeling. Because if you, if you haven't the experience, if you don't feel it in your body that it's important and beautiful, uh, then you can also not cognitively uh, accept it. Yeah. So we are also not... We are also nature, and the division between nature and culture is also not so important. So that's also one of the guiding principles of my book. We are dependent on each other, we are dependent on nature, nature is dependent on us, but we are also not divided between a mind and a body. We are one, we are one whole thing. That's why I also love this big sit uh, um, yeah. here. And I think also mind mindfulness and meditation for children is also great because, you know, urban life is very, very hectic. So if children experience nature from, from when they're young in a good way, if they can practice meditation, mindfulness from young, they, they get also themselves more resilience and more sync capacities in their own body, as I, told, as I said before. So that's a very important one uh, concerning children. Um, another one is that a huge problem in, in urban areas nowadays is the access to healthy food. Yeah. And food is also a very important connector of people be between people and nature. So it's very important that schools, for instance, and hospitals, and not only for children, but children is a good start, 
that they experience what it's like to grow food and understand the complexities of a season and of the, the, the air quality of the soil and that it is a miracle actually that things grow so that they get this uh, lived experience of it. And so we, there are some municipalities in the Netherlands that do that. It's very difficult because, of course, urban areas are often polluted. How do you get the soil clean? Um, but anyway, it's worthwhile. And I want to say something else, Please actually, do. because nature is not only fun and it's not only great and beautiful or romantic. It's also sometimes scary and it's devastating. It can, it, it, a hurricane can, you know destroy complete communities, it, it makes people insecure and unsafe. So that's also a part of nature that we have to teach our children how to become really resilient and navigate your way through the, you know, the gales or the, the, the esteem, the, the, the supposed gales that nature provides. Absolutely. And I think that's something we don't talk about much, right? We talk about the, the beauty of trees, of parks, of things, when in reality, it's this duality and this I find beauty in the duality because it, it is chaos and it is scary, but without meaning to be scary, right? Nature doesn't know good or bad, it, it just is, yep. and we have forgotten how to just, just be. Yeah, so for, for in order to appreciate the biodiversity, we also have to acknowledge that there is a lot of social and cultural diversity also among people and that there are huge inequalities in the world. Not everybody can go, you know, to all these beautiful places. Yeah. We have a huge income differences worldwide. Um, uh, some people have a large footprint, others have a smaller footprint. Well, we know that the people with the largest footprint that pollute the most, the consequences of the pollution go to the people with the smallest footprint. So there's a lot of work to be done there as well. And that's, that's something I also find challenging when being here at a conference like this, because I'm also, besides all the thing on ecological justice, I'm also doing a lot of things on social justice yeah. and economic justice. And of course they're intertwined, but what do you prioritize? So if someone would ask me, if you would ask me, what do you think is most important for cities worldwide? Then I would also say, of course, that everybody has a, has a safety, safe way of living, uh, income, uh, the ways to express themselves, the, the, the cultural appreciation of the way they want to uh, live and work. But not, it's not more important than, they, than uh, ecological uh, ju justice. So I'm struggling sometimes with, yeah. these, uh, with these things and to get it into a coherent message. Uh, it's anyway, you know, difficult to get a coherent message if you depart from diversity. Because we are trained also to make stories that go from A to B to Z in the long journey and people start with the problem and they give some solutions and then they say, if we all do all this, this is wonderful. Uh, but it's not that easy because on the way to the solutions you encounter new problems or you encounter unintended consequences of what you've done. You can think like, oh, this park should be really like this. It's beautiful, like the, the, the St. Lucia River here. It's beautiful because it connects the Funidura Park with the center uh, in a safe way. And you can use it for all kinds of recreational purposes. But what I've also seen is that it doesn't connect really the, at the present. Um, uh, it's not a really a gate through, for instance, for insects and birds yeah. and butterflies. So that would be like, for instance, a, an extra step. Um, the people that planned it had good intentions. So they have to have time now to revise and maybe say, okay, we do something else with it to give space to nature. 
but then maybe it's not that accessible anymore for people. So you always have these trade-offs between choices that you make. Absolutely, and you say it so eloquently, and I think it's something um, we have to keep reminding ourselves and also the people around us, right, that this evolution and this this uh, new movement of climate justice, social justice, ecological justice is ever-evolving, it's ever-connected, and it's it's a movement because it, it never stops. We, we just have to keep working through it, keep um, fixing our mistakes sometimes, keep evolving, and that that it really is the beauty of it and it that's i would say one of the things that is so intricate about nature and thus about us because we are also nature right that we are evolving mm-hmm. yeah one other thing that i really would like to say is what i see in a conference like this and also many other places where people meet uh, everywhere that maybe the biggest threat to humanity uh, might be our addiction to status so that we are so much we really want to please others and ourselves that we are important to other people and that's why i also say i'm i'm radically ecocentric and if you're radically ecocentric and not anthropocentric so you put nature first or the the rest of the living world instead of the human it's also a, social, uh, a personal development, so it's not so important anymore what people think of you, how you look, um, if you're an influencer or not, if you have a lot of money, etc. It's much more important what you do and what, you, uh, what your imprint and impact is on the, on the people around you, on the environment around you, on the living world around you. So people should not have a CV of, oh, I'm so good in this, and so good in that, but they should have a CV well, I've created this garden, uh, I made the neighbor happy, um, I helped some children have a good education. And not, not starting with the eye, but really with the stories and the impact stories that you ha- can have as a person to really show what your positive pro- footprint is on the world. That's also my problem a bit with the whole footprint discussion. It's a negative thing. Yeah. It's what you destroy, what you make bad. But why don't we look and see, okay, what do we do good? You know, what is, what is really what I do? And it can be small, but if we all make all the stories together, we have, you know, a, a whole museum full of optimistic and positive stories. I love that. That is so beautiful. Um, we are unfortunately running out of time, but before we do that, I would love to know from your professional and your personal experience, what would you say is the biggest benefit that a park can provide for the people on the planet? Uh, urban park or uh, any type of park. Well, it's a spe- literally a space and a place making for everything that we need for our future. So uh, whether it is uh, the Amazon, uh, which I now think of like the youth biggest park we, we have or or the rainforest in I- Indonesia, um, maybe we should call it a park. Yeah. Because also already calling it a park means that we own it mm-hmm. uh, but we should call it a park with realizing that we cannot own all the complexities that are in there we can try to understand them that some the people that live in it on close by to it that they are the first users and caretakers uh, have to show they have to show agency to sustain the park and that if you visit it, uh, you are a visitor. And if you visit someone's house, you also keep it tidy and you don't destroy it. So we, if we visit a park 
as a as a foreigner or as an outsider we have the same rules as visiting someone's home because we if we also are invited by the birds and the bees to visit their homes if we keep it tidy and good for them and if we understand all this then basically everything is a park because we can we can create uh, nature uh, practices everywhere you know even in our homes inside we can we can make uh, or on our roof rooftops we can make small biodiversity hotspots and that's my dream if this little biodiversity hotspots and everybody's rooftop on the, in their houses or their sheds everywhere worldwide would be connected to the, the huge natural areas we have still in, for instance, Indonesia and uh, Brazil and Colombia. And if these two are connected, then we have like one big uh, global park to live, play and enjoy nature in. Thank you so much for putting that image into our heads. I think that's going to give us so much hope. Um, before we leave, I would love to know where can people find you? Where can people find more of the work you do? Where can people buy your book? And where can people get in touch? So if people want to um, access my uh, my work, it can be done through the website of Wageningen University Research. So it's wur.nl in um, very easy, Maria Stuyver, head program Green Cities. And there will be a brochure of like 40 pages with a lot of in- illustrations. Um, uh, ready very quickly to download for free and they can and if you want a really hard copy you can also contact me through the website perfect we will be sure to add all of those links into the episode notes so that we can everybody can download the the book and if it is not ready by the time this episode airs we will make sure to um make it accessible through our social media once you do have it so that everybody can know more of your work Thank you again so much for joining us. Thank you for giving us your time to talk with us. This has been Pod Parks. We hope to see you again very soon. This is the end of today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. And to connect with Marianne and other park professionals from around the world, visit worldurbanparks.org. And before we leave, I want to invite you to go and explore some local urban gardens. And if you can't find one in your vicinity, go make one. Pod Parks is written and hosted by Alice Landon, produced by Vittorio Martin and Luis Romano, sound engineering by Vladimir Yandis. Don't forget to visit worldurbanparks.org and explore the resources our community has for you. Get out, explore, connect.